Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, a new podcast from inside the Whole Life Movement. Each month, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of whole life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life Publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the Executive Director of Democrats for Life. I'm so happy to be here with you today, Robert. This is really exciting that we're starting this podcast in our first episode. And uh, it's so exciting because there are 21 million pro-life Democrats and countless others who share this commitment to life and social justice. So it's about time that there is a podcast out there for all these whole life people. I couldn't agree more. To kick off our show, let's start with our segment in the news, where we look at the news affecting the whole life movement. Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated to the Supreme Court by President Trump. It seems very likely at this point that she will soon be on the court. My question for you, Kristen, is do you think she will vote to overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey? Will the court actually do it? You know, honestly, it's really hard to predict. You know, I think a lot of people thought John Roberts would be a really solid vote for the pro-life point of view. And it was very disappointed to see him vote against our pro-life Democrats from Louisiana who carried the June Medical Services bill all the way to the Supreme Court. So when you talk about justices, it's really hard to determine a lot of times where they will come down on these issues. Yeah, we've seen greater polarization on the court. So we might think that they would vote along those lines, especially when we look at the background of Amy Coney Barrett or John Roberts and the work that his wife has done, right, on pro-life issues. But the court's credibility is also just cratering because of this polarization, right? The sense that there's a lot of ideologues on the court sort of imposing their own views. So I really don't know how it's going to go. And I don't think many people can predict. Uh, I know a lot of people are afraid that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned, something that I would like to see. But I don't think that it's going to happen anytime soon. We, I, the next thing we might see is a challenge to a 22-week abortion ban if everything goes well in Colorado and we pass the Prop 115 there. But I, I, at this point, I just think it's really too hard to predict what people will do. Given John Roberts' uh, you know, flip-flop on this June medical issue when he voted mm-hmm. with Texas and against Louisiana, it's, the prediction of the Supreme Court is very difficult. If Roe was overturned, if Casey was overturned, what does that mean for the for the pro-life movement? What changes would have to take place? A lot of people are really uh, confused by Roe and what it would actually do. It would just simply send things back to the states. And so states like California and New York that have very lenient, extreme abortion policy, it would still be legal there. And they would still have the same policies that they have today. But overturning Roe would just send these decisions back to the states. And when you look at where most abortions are performed, I mean, one out of every 10 abortions are performed in New York. So, and, you know, uh, California has a very high abortion rate, too, followed by our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. So it's still it just continues. And I think that's where the fights are right now in the states. When we have the Love Life Amendment in Louisiana, we have Prop 115 in Colorado. New Jersey is looking at uh, an abortion bill. So uh, the the fight is in the states right now. I think it would just be more fierce. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a a lot of the fight, though, has been over the Supreme Court, right? Like that's kind of been the center, central focus of the pro-life movement 
And this would shift it to the states and to legislatures, right? And that means also shifting it to the public, trying to win over the public, I think, becomes even more important if this returns to the political branches. Right. And I'd also worry about a backlash if we don't step up and provide more assistance to pregnant women, to young families, to working class people. If people just try to put heavy restrictions on abortion without providing that support, I think there's going to be a real negative backlash. Yeah, I always say we need to prepare for a post-Roe world, and we do need all to lay this groundwork where, you know, fortunately, the abortion rate is going down, and we need to keep that trend going. And we need to support the pregnancy centers that really help women provide job training, clothing, jobs. You know, it's amazing what some of these um, these centers ha- have done for women who are facing these unplanned crisis pregnancies. And we really need to put more of that infrastructure in place to support the working families and the, the young families. Definitely. All right, let's move on to our next segment, which is the question of the month. This month's question is, how can you remain a Democrat when you are pro-life? That's one of the questions that I get probably the most. People say, you should leave the party. Why do you stay in the Democratic Party? And, you know, I'm a I'm a longtime Democrat. I'm uh, quite a bit older than you, Robert. <laughs> I uh, My first campaign that I worked on was the Dukakis campaign in 1988. And, uh, you know, and that's when I my Democratic values were formed. I came from a Republican family and um, and I went to college and came home with a Dukakis for president sticker in the back of my car. <laughs> but, you know, and my, my ideals were just formed through that. I did an internship on Capitol Hill and I worked on the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, trying to extend rights to individuals with disabilities. And my first boss on Capitol Hill wrote the OSHA law, you know, which said that people in the workforce should receive protections. And his father died in a accident in a, in a factory. And that's why he wrote the law. And so, you know, I see it from a, you know, the government has responsibility to help people and support people and working people and making sure there's a living wage, making sure that pregnant women have opportunities in the workforce to have accommodations. And I think that's where my democratic values stem from. And I feel like that my party is more in line with all those protections and support for, you know, the uh, American citizens. And I think the, the issue of the baby in the womb is just an extension of those, those human rights that is, the party's wrong on. And I stay in this party because I think we need to bring it in line with all the other values that we hold dear as Democrats and make us the most consistent whole life party. And uh, I I think we would be unstoppable. Mm -hmm. I've always sort of sided with the underdog. And I'm a Democrat because I believe that government can make people's lives better and advance the common good. And that since FDR the party's been t- committed to looking out for working class Americans and middle class Americans, right? Through progressive taxation, a strong social safety net, and so much more. I believe that it is the party for people who believe that government should do what it can to advance economic, social, environmental, racial justice. Of course, when it comes to abortion, you know, I'm deeply troubled by the direction the party has been heading. And especially the role of sort of big money special interest groups. I mean, they dominate American politics and they dominate both parties, right? Some people might just think that they dominate the Republicans, but we've seen the impact they can have. So ultimately, I think we need to reform our political institutions and make them more democratic. 
I think the Democratic Party is more likely to do that than the Republican Party, but that's going to take time. And uh, ultimately, those of us who are pro-life progressives can sort of just give up and check out of this broken system and just hand over even more power to these elites. Or we can join one of these two major parties and push it in a more whole life direction as best as we can. And reversing the trend in our party on abortion is daunting. But to me, it's still more viable than convincing the Republican Party to change its entire approach to economics and the role of government and so much more that uh, I think is at a step with what we're trying to do with this whole life movement. Yeah, that's spot on. And I can tell you over the last probably several months since I spoke to Pete Buttigieg in Des Moines, Iowa that, that night and asked if there was room for life Democrats in the party, there has been an explosion of pro-life Democrats coming out and volunteering with our organization, wanting to come out and help. So it's an exciting time for pro-life Democrats who are tired of being silenced. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. the other day at my son's uh, soccer game, a woman came out to me as a pro-life Democrat. She had no idea that I was the executive director of Democrats for Life. Um, you know, this was just a woman on the soccer field and she was talking about the election and she said she's having a very hard time knowing what to do. And she said, but I'm, you know, I oppose abortion. And she said, but I support all the democratic policies. And she said, I think I'm a pro-life Democrat. And it, yeah. you know, I think we're going to find more people like that who are really struggling with this issue, but will join us in really trying to make our party the whole life party. Yeah. That, I mean, we have to build this movement, right? There are over 20 million pro-life Democrats, and we know that there are millions more that have left or don't feel comfortable in the Democratic Party. So it's a matter of sort of mobilizing them. You know, if we were libertarians, people would be writing us, billionaires would be writing us checks. So because we're arguing to give them tax cuts. But so many of our pro-life progressives, pro-life Democrats are are teachers, they're waitresses, they're construction workers. They're not giving up their hard-earned money, you know, writing these giant checks to push their beliefs. So it is about mobilizing people. And uh, that's our task. Yes. So if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, join Democrats for Life and mobilize with us. Come get involved. (laughs) Democratsforlife.org. Now it's the time for the interview portion of our show. Our guest today is Justin Gibney. Justin is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also the co-founder and president of the Ann Campaign. And he's one of the most thoughtful commentators on American politics and the intersection of faith and politics in the United States. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, AND campaign, how it got started and what you all trying to do in your work there? Sure. I think the, you know, the, the beginnings of the AND campaign are really tied to my kind of journey through through politics. So, you know, I've been doing campaign consulting and campaign management for over a decade. And while I was doing it, I just kind of noticed I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, which is obviously a very progressive democratic space. I'm in uh, John Lewis's old district, uh, rest in peace. And I just noticed that when people who are running their campaigns or folks that I knew uh, wanted who wanted to get into politics, that they felt in order to get into politics, it was a given that they would have to kind of um, 
surrender some of their convictions. And one of those convictions kind of be, being the pro-life conviction. And it wasn't a subtle suggestion always. I mean, I've had friends who wanted to be in women's groups and they were like, hey, you need to you know, sign this paper saying that you're for abortion and for government funded abortion. And one friend was like, well, I don't really believe that. They're like, well, just sign it and uh, we'll, we'll take care of that later. I've had other friends who were running for office and very close to running and got in a room and they asked them what their what their position was on abortion and other issues. And, you know, we're told you better never say that again or you'll you'll never run in this uh, city. So it became very clear to me that that wasn't something that was going to be accepted in, in, you know, more culturally conservative positions weren't going to be accepted when it came to politics and in this progressive city and just in general. And I just didn't like that. I just couldn't accept that, that that was okay. But at the same time, I had friends who were Republicans. Um, this was probably more so during the Tea Party era, who were in politics and didn't feel like they could be as compassionate as they wanted to be. That the policies of the Republican Party at that time just weren't allowing them to be really the Christian, you know, use their Christian compassion the way they wanted to. So what I began to see was this false dichotomy in American politics where if you care about justice and issues like that, that you would go to the left and surrender your convictions. Or if you cared about moral order and the sanctity of life, that you would go to the right and you would surrender some of your compassion in that regard. And I just didn't think that's the way it should be. I thought that was a false dilemma that people, especially people of faith, shouldn't have to fall into. And so that's really where the AND campaign comes. We're saying we're not going to make that false choice regardless of what party we're in. We believe in justice and moral order. We believe in compassion and conviction. And we think it's important to reframe some of the issues like abortion rather than just to answer it in the way that it's, it's given to us. And that's kind of where the AND campaign came from. And so we're a Christian civic organization uh, that's trying to raise civic literacy among Christians, help them ap apply their values to the issues of the day, including a whole life perspective, not just kind of like a, a pro-birth uh, perspective. And I think, you know, we've caught on fairly quickly because I think we've just articulated what a lot of people were already thinking and just didn't have the language to say. And we've kind of, through some of our work, uh, provided language and a framework for articulating that point of view. Yes, I remember when I first heard about you, I Googled you, of course, and uh, saw some of your speeches. But one of the things that caught my eye was a picture of you in a crowd and it was all these different signs of that really resonated with someone like me when you see this, these whole life signs that it's not yep. just about abortion. So that is one of your big projects right now, the whole life project. Can you tell us a little bit about more about the whole life project and what are the goals? Because, it, you know, it's something that Democrats for Life really supports as well, really expressing this whole life ethic. Yeah, the whole life project, that's all, you know, the women of the AND campaign came together and said, man, it's, it's time for us to speak for ourselves. Too often, I think, you know, you have people, kind of the secular progress progressive set that speaks for, you know, African-American women, and then you have, you know, others who try to speak for them. They wanted to speak for themselves, and they did so using the AND campaign's framework that many of them kind of helped put together. And really what the whole life uh, project is doing is, again, reframing the conversation around abortion. So often when it, it is, is presented to us, it's presented as either you care about women's health or you care about the unborn. And that's just, a, again, that's a false dilemma. That's a false dichotomy. What the whole life project is saying is, no, we care about both. So we care about women in crisis pregnancies. We care about health care. We care about how children are, are treated once they're born and what type of resources they have. And we care about the unborn. 
Uh, we don't have to separate those two. Those two come together. And I think that project has touched a lot of people. Uh, it, it's ongoing. But the messaging, I think, really resonated with people who know that, you know, the progressive narrative about the baby just doesn't exist. You don't even have to consider it. Don't worry about it. Uh, it doesn't even exist. Most honest people that really look into it know that's not right. But they also know it's not right to disregard what a woman might be going through at that time and why she may feel that's the best decision for her. And so, I, I'm, I mean, I think the project is great. I think, uh, you know, we have a video that's gotten uh, over 100,000 views just explaining that this is different. We don't have to explain it like progressives or conservatives. There's a kind of Christian viewpoint that, that people need to hear about. And I think it's, it's reached a lot of people who would have said probably before that they were pro-choice, but now they see that there's a better way to be kind of a whole life uh, position. Great. The Ant campaign is also a real leader on issues of racial justice. And of course, the rallying cry of the uh, bigger movement is Black Lives Matter. How important is it for those who claim to support and defend life to stand up for Black lives at this moment in our nation's history? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, this is a human dignity issue. Uh, When you're saying Black Lives Matter, you're not saying anybody else's lives don't matter, but you're saying that you're recognizing the dignity of Black lives in a country that historically has denied that dignity, has has undercut that dignity. And so that's why it's important to put that emphasis on on Black Americans who, you know, from slavery through Jim Crow and all the other things we know, have really been treated as if they weren't equal. And to see what's going on still today with the racialized violence, it's something that you have to care about. And I often talk about not putting the pro-life issue in a vacuum. I think what happens a lot of times on the right, especially, is when you put it in a vacuum and you kind of exclude examination of all other issues, whether it be race or whatever, that you're really hurting your credibility on that issue, right? How can you say that you're pro-life and you're not really going to talk about police reform with all these deaths? You're really not going to talk about health care. It just, you know, I think the pro-life movement in some respects has lost credibility because of that. But I think people who can see it as a whole life conversation, that black lives matter just the way that the lives of the unborn matter, that people that don't have the power always to control everything that's going on around them doesn't make them any less of a person. And that's really what what it's about. And and I do think there are some people waking up to the connection between those two. But I I really beg people, you know, you can make the the pro-life issue your number one issue. You can prioritize it. I get that. Don't put it in a vacuum to where you ignore other issues that may actually play into that whole conversation. So what what steps do you think are needed to further racial equality in the U.S., Uh, particularly after this next election? You know, there'll be a lot of healing that this nation needs on many levels. So what do you think can be done? Yeah, I think, you know, you have to talk about criminal justice. You have to talk about police reform and the interactions of police with the with the African-American community. Those things have to change. We have to talk about mass incarceration, which is taking, you know, a lot of men out of the home unnecessarily or taking them out of just the, the community, which, again, could be a reason that, you know, we find ourselves in a position where women are in crisis pregnancies and don't have the support that they could have because we've taken men off the street unnecessarily and and for for longer than they need to be taken. These all play into that conversation. So I think uh, criminal justice, police reform is a good place to start. I think always voter rights, representation in a country that has denied representation uh, to people of color for so long is very serious. 
And so we have to make sure that people, that no, no unfair kind of obstacles are placed in front of people voting. I think those are two huge things. And anybody who's trying to look for racial reconciliation and a greater conversation about how the races can come together need to be talking about those two issues. So there's, there's others, uh, but I think those two are, are two big ones. So you spoke a little bit there about the importance of voting and voting rights. And I know that Ant Campaign has released information on voting and democracy and sort of has made that one of the issues you guys are uh, trying to address. Do you think of this as a whole life issue? And what steps can we take to try to protect the vote for all of our citizens in this country? It's certainly an issue of representation. I think when you take away somebody's vote, you take away their voice. You know, it's a means of trying to take away someone's agency. It's really cheating, you know, in the worst way, uh, in a political sense, you are, you are cheating them out of what they have, out of a right they have as a citizen. And so I think we all have an obligation to push our elected officials to be as transparent as possible. You know, one of the things that happened in Georgia a few years back is that they were putting up more obstacles to people voting because of voter, you know, because they said we're talking about voter fraud, but they never showed any evidence of voter fraud. And so I think as citizens, we need to say, if you're going to do anything that's going to make it any harder for anybody to vote, then you need to show where there's been fraud. Or you can go to what's going on in Florida right now, where the people voted to give the right to vote back to people who had been in prison, but had served their time. And then the Republican Party comes back and says, no, we're going to make sure that they pay their fines too which is another way to put another obstacle in the way of people voting. You having the money to pay a fine should not take away the right to vote, especially after the people uh, decided to give that, that, that right back to, to that group. So these are things that we see and, and, and really have to fight against and hold people accountable when they obstruct those things. And I think, you know, in some ways, I don't think the right understands that if they weren't doing those things, then maybe they would have a larger constituency that would actually vote with them on some stuff. But as long as you are keeping people out of the process, that's just not going to happen. Right. The strategy seems to be, hey, we can't win these people over, so let's exclude them from the process. But or we don't want to try. Right. Yeah, right. So, Justin, you said, you know, you said many times that you are driven and most of your organization is driven by Christ Christian convictions. So this is true of a lot of people in the whole life movement and the pro-life movement. But there is a rising number of people who are not affiliated. And there also are a lot of whole lifers who are not religious. In fact, we have one of our board members is an atheist, vegan, and we also have a rabbi on our board as well. So is there a way we can make this movement inclusive and welcoming to all, but which also, also allowing those driven by a particular faith to express themselves using the same language? Absolutely. I mean, I, I believe in what we call uh, co-belligerency. I believe in being able to team up with people of different faiths who may be doing something for a little bit of a, of a different reason or from a different foundation, but it's still good work. And I think the civil rights movement was a prime example of people of different faiths coming together. And I, should, we, I think we should be open to that. I mean, we live in a pluralistic society and we should be open to working together. And that's how democracy works best when we're willing to have those conversations. So I certainly explain my reasoning and foundation, certainly from a, a faith-based perspective, but regardless of what your perspective is, if you see the dignity of human life uh, at conception, then you're somebody that I can work with. As uh, Frederick Douglass said, I'd work with anybody to do right and nobody to uh, to do wrong. And that's the way that I feel about it. That's a great quote. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that uh, 
that belief in human dignity can cut across people with different worldviews and religious backgrounds. You've talked a lot in the past about the importance of starting with one's convictions and then evaluating the different political parties rather than letting the parties sort of determine one's convictions. Why is that so important? Why are you sort of always emphasizing this? Yeah, I, I don't think people realize that the parties aren't necessarily always making their decisions based on these firm principles. Sometimes parties are making decisions based on who's giving them money. Sometimes parties are making decisions based on ulterior motives from people that are maneuvering within. There's a myriad of reasons why parties make decisions or move in a certain way that's not always for the people, that's not always for the common good or for the better. And it, it really is it's sad how many otherwise intelligent people base their decisions and base their beliefs off what their political party is saying. I mean, I can name you a lot of friends that I have who are, you know, deep in politics, who are running campaigns, who are, uh, you know, who are, are campaign consultants, that really their all their thoughts on abortion are basically the talking points that you get from Neural or that you get from Planned Parenthood. That's their view in whole of that conversation. And it's really sad because they'll talk about how dumb the other side is, but they literally will just take those talking points and that's really all they can give you. And if you dig a little deeper, you see that it's really not a point of view that that's all that solid, but it feels that way to them because everybody around them is saying that. And when you de demonize the other side to the extent that we have on both sides of the aisle, then being on the other side of uh, the demon over there is always, always must seem good. And that's, that's just not a critical way to think about it. And so I, I think if we don't start with our own principles and our own convictions, then we run the risk of being indoctrinated. And that's really all that is. It's, it's accepting something without thinking critically about it or without questioning it. And we need to always run those things through our convictions to make sure that they're solid. Great. I know you um, you talk about some of these issues in your new book that uh, came out, Compassion and Conviction. You want to tell us a little bit more about your book and where people can get it? Yeah. So in July, me and my co-authors came out with a book called Compassion and Conviction. It's the Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And really what we wanted to do is give Christians especially a framework for how to deal with politics. We want people to see politics outside of a purely partisan frame for the reasons that I just named. And so we gave them what we see as a Christian framework for engaging politics. And we think that's based off having compassion and convictions. And so when you look at an issue, what do your convictions say is right or wrong? What's the truth? And also what what's compassion say? How does compassion play into that? And I think you know, earlier when I talked about how we look at the abortion issue, that's what we're applying, the, that compassion and conviction framework. We talk about partisanship. We talk about political rhetoric. So hopefully people can come out of this with a trained eye. I think it's a book that works on a number of levels, whether you're somebody who's just trying to get into politics and understand politics, it'll work for you. Or if you're someone who's been in politics for a while and you just know you need to do it better, uh, I think it'll work for, for those folks as well. And you know, we have a, a you know, just a whole lot of experience between uh, the three of us that wrote this book and are really getting some good reviews with people who, who are connecting with it, saying, I don't feel all that comfortable in either party. And this gives me the ability to even be in a party, but also have a little bit of independence so I can make my own decisions and make the best decisions. We are hearing a lot of that this election cycle, um, you know, the struggle of really wanting to vote for the, you know, and support the Democratic Party. But the abortion issue is 
really becoming a, a problem for a lot of, of Democratic voters, and particularly in independents. So I encourage people to check out this book. And where can they get it? So you can get it from InterVarsity Press, from their website. You can get it on Amazon. And we were a, a number one seller for a while on there. So yeah, we would love for you to check out the book. It's it's rich, it, you know, especially for those coming from a biblical standpoint. It'll, it'll really feed you and, and help you get through this, this very tense moment. Great. Well, Robert, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I was just like going back to the beginning, I guess. How did you initially get interested in politics? Were there people that really inspired you to get involved? Yeah, you know, initially, me getting in politics was a, a kind of a product of my dad was always interested in politics and talked about it a lot. You know, I'm from Denver, so I saw guys like Mayor Wellington Webb, Mayor Federico Pena, who were just solid leaders. And um, so I always had a little bit of an interest. But when I got out of law school, I had a group of friends who would always come together and we'd either talk sports or we talk politics. And one day I was just like, hey, why don't we get in the game instead of being so academic about it? And that's kind of where it started. Great. So who do you see as one of the leaders of today within the whole life movement? Mm. Man, I'm a big fan of state Senator Katrina Jackson. Oh, yeah. I think I think her perspective is huge. Anytime I'm talking to Republicans who are pro-life, I, I say, hey, you need to be funding her and giving her some exposure because you should want Democrats that are that brave and have the courage to stand up and be different. Because, you know, not everybody's nice to her. I've seen her go on shows and not be treated uh, very, very respectfully at all. And um, so I, I just, you know, she's a, she's a champion to us and we really uh, support her and, and believe in her. I agree with you 100% on that. I was just with her last <laughs> week in Louisiana and supporting the Love Life Amendment that she authored there. And uh, yeah, she's one of the uh, the true pro-life for the whole life advocates, along with the governor of the state, uh, John Bell Edwards, who also oh, runs in that circle. We really uh, appreciate these whole life leaders. And uh, as much as I hate to admit it, Louisiana has the best Democrats. I know. So we need some more people in Georgia. So what are you going to do about that, Justin? We'll see. Give me a chance. Give me a little bit of time. I got some catching up to do. All right. We just launched Run Pro-Life and we're Democrats for Life. We're trying to find some pro-life Democrats to run. And so let us know when you're ready, Justin. Will do. All right. I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And tell us your website and where we can people can follow you. Yeah, so the AND campaign website is AND campaign, A N D campaign.org.org. Or, or you can follow us on social media at AND campaign on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at engage and campaign.org. And uh, thank you both for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks so much. so much for joining us. Take care. Great. Uh, our next segment is on the ground and on the hill, where we talk about the whole life grassroots activism and also legislative efforts. So I've got a few questions for you here, Kristen. So let's sort of go lightning round here. <laughs> All right. I saw that you were recently in Louisiana with some whole life leaders. What were you doing down there? We went to Louisiana for two reasons. One, we had a seminar talking about the June Medical Services, the Supreme Court case that was overturned by Justice Roberts. Uh, he sided with the majority to overturn the law. And mm -hmm. we had some great legal minds, um, Catherine 
with Americans United for Life, and that's Catherine Glenn Foster with Americans United for Life. Uh, we had Tom Berg, who's uh, the, our board chair of Democrats for Life, and he's a constitutional law professor at St. Thomas, and Katrina Jackson herself, who is a lawyer. And it was a really fascinating discussion about uh, the ramifications of June Medical and where we go from here. And we were also there to rally for the proposition the Love Life Amendment authored by Katrina Jackson that will make sure that there will be no public funding of abortion in Louisiana and that life is protected in Louisiana. So we are very hopeful that the Love Life Amendment passes there. It's getting a lot of good support and um, we were happy to be there to support it. And that's on the uh, November ballot there? Yes, it's on the November ballot there. Great. Speaking of ballots, in Colorado, Prop 115 is on the ballot. What does the prop say and why should whole lifers care? This has been a great effort by our Colorado Democrats, our pro-life Democrat chapter there, Democrats for Life, led by the great Tom Perel and Kristen Bale. They have done a tremendous job of really rallying the troops. So the amendment, they had to get, um, first of all, they had to get signatures And this was extremely difficult during COVID. They were able to get enough signatures to get the proposition on the ballot. And the ballot pretty much bans abortion after 22 weeks. And 22 weeks is around the time of viability. So what it does is says that instead of ending the baby's life, we should provide the baby with health care. And so it's really neck and neck right there right now. We have printed off uh, 15,000 brochures that we've handed out to Democrats, trying to get Democrats to understand that this is really a, a health care issue. We need to support the woman, support the baby, you know, choose both, and not uh, allow the baby's life to be ended. It's a very mainstream Are there position, other- really, when you think about it. I mean, 82% of Democrats oppose third trimester abortions. So it, it's very mainstream position. So we're really trying to get the, our Democrats and independents to get out and vote for Prop 115. Yeah, I totally agree. Are there specific races that whole life supporters should be watching closely on election night? Yes. Yeah, so we have one of our remaining pro-life Democrats in Congress, Colin Peterson, is in a really tough race up in Minnesota. But the daughter of the National Right to Life Committee is running against him. And uh, she also happens to be married to the head of the Minnesota Citizens for Life. So nothing strange going on there. But uh, so <laughs> he, he was endorsed by the major newspaper there. The, he's the chairman of the Ag Committee, so has done a lot for his district. So we're really optimistic that he's going to pull this out. We also have a, a race in Tennessee, John DeBerry. He's a sitting rep there. And um, this one's very important, too, because the Democratic Party removed him from the ballot because of his pro-life convictions, and he's forced to run as an independent. We have endorsed him as the real Democrat in the race, and we are hopeful that he will be able to keep his seat. He is um, just a real stand-up, whole-life advocate. He really cares about the people in his district. And uh, we have a lot of other great races around the country, too, of, of pro-life Democrats running. We have a city councilwoman in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Monica Sparks, who's just incredible. And so we have a woman in New York who's running for state rep and we have people all over the country. So there's, we're going to be watching a, a lot, lot of races, a lot of races this, this time around. We've endorsed a number of candidates um, that you can see on our true blue list on our website. 
a lot at the state level, right? That's that's where a lot of pro-life Democrats are still running. Right. Yeah. No. So we launched a Run Pro-Life and we are really trying to uh, communicate and find every single pro-life Democrat in this nation who's on city council, school board delegates, state senate, and we're trying to really connecting with these members and letting them know that they're not alone. Because it can be a lonely position being a pro-life Democrat. So we've been excited mm-hmm. to connect with these these great representatives who are doing the job for us and protecting life. And so it's been just a privilege mm-hmm. to to meet these really courageous men and women who stand up for their beliefs and support them. Mm-hmm. And those races are so important, right? I think people want success in the whole life movement overnight. They want a presidential candidate that they can get behind. Sort of everyone in American politics wants that, right? Right. But being able to build at the state level, building stronger candidates, uh, I think is really vital for the movement. Yeah. So we're very excited about this this movement here of the, the Run Pro-Life. And we, at our first meeting, we had 20 people come out and say that they wanted to run or were considering running. So I think if people know that they get permission to run as a pro-life Democrat, they need that assurance Mm -hmm. that it's okay and there's nothing wrong with being a pro-life Democrat. I think we all struggle with that. The first time I came out as a pro-life Democrat was when I was working on Capitol Hill and I was the new person in the office and they all said that I had to handle the abortion issue. (laughs) And I was like, well, all right. But then I realized that my boss was a pro-life Democrat. And, um, you know, this is what was created from that moment. (laughs) I took (laughs) over the pro-life issue and here I am. (laughs) I -hmm. haven't stopped since. So down the stretch here uh, until the election, are there upcoming events people who are whole life should know about next uh, week or two here? Yep. So we're headed to Tennessee on Thursday and we're going to hold a rally there with pro-life Democrats in Tennessee before the uh, presidential debate. We've been attending every debate since it started way back in last year before pre-COVID. And we've been carrying our pro-life for the whole life banner, really trying to connect and build our grassroots level. And we've met some amazing people all over the country. In LA, in fact, we met uh, Joji Takati, who is now planning our 2021 conference. So uh, everybody save the date for that. It'll be next at the end of July next year in LA. So everyone's put that on your calendars. And uh, we also have the March for Life. We will be marching for life in January. We will have some more town halls and virtual meetings. So be on the lookout for those. With masks and uh, social distancing, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We do have some pro-life Dem masks if anybody's interested in ordering one. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the end of our show. I want to thank everybody for listening to this first Whole Life podcast. Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial. We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Thank you.